Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? We're going to be looking at that passage today. As I told you at the beginning of this series, first, that was it, thank you, that uh, is meant to be read. So we're going to read a lot of this letter as we go through it, and sometimes extended portions of the letter. We're going to do that today and read the whole first chapter in just a few moments. You've heard of Arthur C. Clarke. He was a famous novelist, uh, science writer, science fiction writer, the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, before he died, he left instructions that stated absolutely no religious rites of any kind relating to any religious faith should be associated with my funeral. He openly confessed himself to be an atheist, Uh, He admitted that he was biased against religion, said he couldn't forgive religion for atrocities perpetrated against humanity. Years ago, I took Clark's first novel, which was written in 1953, titled Childhood's End, with me on vacation. And I found it very disturbing. It's about an alien species tasked with overseeing human development and through most of human history humans are totally unaware of their their shepherds these overseers but towards the end of this oversight period the children of earth abruptly begin developing extraordinary abilities they communicate with each other telepathically they find themselves able to manipulate matter on a molecular level eventually we learn that they are evolving into god with all God's powers and knowledge. By the end of the book, Earth's children have evolved into one common, omnipotent mind, the mind that no longer has need of bodies, and so the Earth and everything on it vanishes into non-existence. Well, Clark's example of a really smart guy, he was highly intelligent, who did not like to retain God in his thoughts, to borrow the language of St. Paul. He once said, it might be that our role on this planet is not to worship God, but to create him. It seems to me that Clark got caught in the same trap that snapped shut on our first parents. They were tempted to cast off submission to God by the promise, you'll be like God. And they took the bait. And so did he. But the idea of the evolution of humanity is not all wrong. Humanity is evolving. Now, I'm not talking about our old high school science books with their charts that showed how apes evolved into various hominids and finally into humans. This has nothing to do with that. I'm talking about a change that God has been planning for humanity since its beginning a change made possible through the coming of Christ and introduced into humanity by the descent of the Spirit. A change that began abruptly 2,000 years ago and is going on still. Humanity took a giant step forward, or upwards is more like it, when God's Spirit was united to human beings. When that happened, humans didn't become God as in in. Arthur C. Clarke's novel, but were transformed into a new kind of humanity with a connection to God that had not previously existed. That's absolutely huge. We're talking about nothing less than a change in the species and what makes a person human. 
The Bible speaks of this in various ways. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Or the new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's Colossians 3.10. The new human has experienced a new birth by the Spirit. So Jesus told Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Paul tells the Galatians that under the new reality of what God's doing, the only thing that counts is a new creation. Now, that's one side of things. But there's another side as well. Those who will not become new, who will not enter the new creation through a connection to God, will become obsolete. When the old order of things has passed into oblivion and the one seated on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new, there will be no place for people who will not be made new, who are not evolved through a connection to the Spirit, who is the very source of life, they'll be put out of business, destroyed, condemned by their own unwillingness to change. These days, one hears lots of talk about being on the wrong side of history. Well, this is the wrong side of history, to fail to be part of the new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were part of that new creation, but they were still thinking and talking and acting like they were part of the old creation. That resulted in a delay in their transformation into Christ's likeness, and it also resulted in pride, competition, quarrels. They acted as if they'd reached some level of spiritual development, but Paul tells them, frankly, you're stuck. You haven't made any progress. Let's read our text, all 23 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll put it on the screen, but you might just want to listen the way a first century Corinthian would have listened to this letter being read by one of Paul's associates. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. 
It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If anyone thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All right, so we're thinking very big picture. God's making a new humanity, and he's going about it in a way that no one would ever have dreamed through sending the divine Son of God to die and rise from the dead, and then sending the Spirit, in Greek that's the pneuma, to incorporate the divine life into those who have given themselves to the Son, making them new creations. The Corinthians were among those who gave themselves to the Son and received the Spirit, were sealed by the Spirit for the coming day of redemption. They had the Spirit, but here's the thing. They were living as if they didn't. So Paul says to them, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I said that wrong. There's actually two very closely related adjectives in this Passage. One is sarkinois, which is right here. The other is sarkikois. Sarkinois means natural human, without the spirit. A person who's, who lives on only biological drives. I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Infants in Christ. When Paul came to Corinth, the people there were not evolved. They did not have the Spirit of God. They were not new creations. Well, then he should have expected that, right? Absolutely. Prior to Paul's arrival, the Corinthians hadn't even heard the gospel, the new thing that God had done and was doing through Jesus Christ. That's true. But, Paul says, verse 2, I still can't talk to you like people with the Spirit. You're no longer sarkinois. You have the Spirit. But you don't act like it. You act like you're sarkikois, like people dominated by the old, natural, unspiritual life. You act, and Paul almost shudders, you act just like everybody else. And here's the proof. This is verse 3. There is jealousy and quarreling among you. Boy, does he take that seriously. The NIV finishes that verse this way. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? The word the NIV translates as mere men is simply the word men or humans. 
Are you not acting like humans? That's the idea. What a strange thing to say. Of course they're acting like humans. They are humans. But Paul would say, you don't understand. They're new humans. They're part of the new humanity, the next step in human progression. Humans united to God by spirit. That's what they are. But they're not acting like it. Now, before we go on, let me just say this. It might sound like being a part of the new humanity would puff a person up with pride. Just the opposite is true. Remember the gospel. There is nothing for you or me to be proud of except our God. The most important day in our lives didn't happen during our lifetimes. It didn't happen at our expense, and it didn't come about by our efforts. That's what we call grace. Being part of the new humanity inspires gratitude, not pride. The life the Spirit gives is humble by its very nature. In the previous section, Paul took pains to make clear that the Corinthians were on the wrong path because they had failed to understand the very gospel itself and were trying to enhance the news of a crucified Christ with something more palatable, with a message of wisdom. In this section, he goes on to tell the Corinthians they've not only failed to understand the gospel, they failed to understand themselves. They're acting like mere humans, that is, humans without God's spirit. They're competing with each other. They're jealous. They're quarrelsome. That's how people without spirit act. That competitive jealousy and the quarrels manifested themselves in an unhealthy us-against-them mentality. They divided up into parties. And to Paul's horror, the head of us was Paul himself, and the head of them was his brother Apollos. Some of the leaders or would-be leaders in Corinth were picking back on Paul and Apollos, and maybe even Peter, as a way of legitimizing their own authority. Instead of praying, seeking God's guidance, and working together, they were pushing their own ideas and agendas, and then claiming Paul and Apollos for authority. That kind of thing, self-gratifying authority, it led in Corinth where it leads everywhere, always, to conflicts and quarrels and jealous competition. Could the Corinthians have been any more confused? Paul and Apollos weren't the head of anything. They were Verse 5, servants sent out by the Lord, each with his own job to do. Further, verse 9, they weren't competitors at all. They were co-workers. In Greek, the idea is, Apollos and I belong to God. It's a true possessive. And we are co-workers with each other. So Paul says, don't pit Apollos and I against each other. We're on the same team. I'm the planter, he's the cultivator, but we're servants of the same master and we're working towards the same goal. You talk about belonging to Paul and Apollos, but Paul and Apollos belong to God. Verse 9 forms a bridge between metaphors. Paul lays aside the plow. He's been out in the field, but now he lays aside the plow and he picks up the trowel. He jumps from the field to the construction site in this verse. He says, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, architecton in Greek, We get a word architect from that. And now someone else is building on that foundation that I laid. Now, he knew that out in the field, he and Apollos were working toward the same goal. 
But on the construction site, he's not at all sure that the people who followed him, the present-day leaders of the Church of Corinth, are working toward that same goal. He says, ominously, almost threateningly, they should be careful how they build. Paul knew that a day was coming, this is verse 13, that will reveal whether church leaders have built well or if they've cut corners. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. In the Bible, fire is often an image of punishment, but just as often, it's used as an image of purification. God will not punish his church, but he will purify it. In reading this passage, it's tempting to think of that persecution as, or as persecution as the fire that will purify the church, and that may be. But since Paul speaks of the day, the day of the Lord is what is in his mind, I expect it's the fire of God's love and holiness that Paul has in mind. For our God is a consuming fire. The fire of God is, as George MacDonald described it, unlike any other fire we know, because it only burns at a distance. The farther from God, the worse his love and holiness burn us. When we approach him, the burning changes to comfort. It's when we run away that we get burned. The quarreling and jealous competition that was going on in Corinth had convinced Paul that for all their claim to wisdom, the Corinthians had not understood the gospel, that's chapter 2. They had not understood themselves, that's chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. They had not understood he and Apollos, that's chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. And now, verse 16, he questions whether or not they even understand the church. Don't you know that you, plural, you together, are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? But it's obvious to Paul that they don't know that. If they did, if they understood what the church really is, they wouldn't dare pick at each other, gossip, accuse, condemn. They don't understand the seriousness of what they're doing. By their actions towards one another, they are defacing the temple of God. In verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. That is just as true today as it was then. The church, not Lockwood Church alone, but all the church of Jesus Christ made up of the people of God around the world and across time is sacred. The person who defaces it by accusation, by condemnation, by jealous rivalry can expect God to take action against him or her. So we'd better be careful. It is not our job to bring to light each person's work. The day will do that. Before we put down or accuse others, I mean Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, Episcopalians, or anyone else who takes the name of Christ, we better remember that God's church is sacred and he will purify it but he will also punish those who do it harm. Sometimes, frankly, I'm dismayed, even frightened by how often and how easily 
people speak against the church of God. In verse 18, Paul says, don't deceive yourselves. Or maybe better, stop deceiving yourselves. Now, this time the verb is singular. Paul is talking to individuals within the church who want to prove their superiority to others by their wisdom and their spirituality. But that's not wisdom. It's pride. That's not spirituality. It's ego. And Paul knows it's damaging God's church. The ironic thing is that in trying to prove their own importance, these church people were living below their calling, which Paul makes clear in this last section of chapter 3. This passage reminds me of the crescendo in a symphony. It builds in power right to the final note. So then, no more boasting about men. Enough of it. Besides damaging God's church by your partisan boasting, you're humiliating yourselves. Don't you realize that all things are yours? And that includes Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Why are you talking about belonging to Paul or Apollos when Paul and Apollos belong to you? All things are yours. Instead of thinking we belong to our teachers... Oh, yeah, I belong to Tim Keller. Yeah, he's, that's the guy. I'm with John Ortberg. Instead of that, we should think that God has given our teachers to us. Good teachers are God's gift to his deeply loved church. How much more grateful we would be for our teachers if we thought of them that way. And they wouldn't feel the need to be celebrities or worry about popularity. They would be loved and appreciated as God's gift to his people. But God has done more than give his people teachers. He's given us all things. All things are yours. Yours by gift and by grace. Yours to use, to profit by, and to enjoy. And not just your teachers, but the world, and life, and death, and the present, and the future. All are yours. You own these things. They have your name on the title. So what are you going to do with them? All things that are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future. That doesn't leave much out, does it? The Corinthians were competing with each other for attention and position. They were acting like children on a playground, boasting about who was the strongest. God had given them the world and life and death and the present and the future, But they ignored all that while they arm-wrestled one another in order to establish their dominance. And how often we've done the same kind of thing. The implication of this is mind-boggling. You hear what Paul's saying, don't you? God has given everything that touches your life to you for your use. You can own everything that in any way touches your life. What would it mean for a person, for example, to own her own death? Instead of running from it, she would meet it, fully confident that she could use even death to achieve greater submission to Christ, to bless the body of Christ, and to announce the good news of Christ to the world. She would take her own death in hand and present it to God as a sacrifice for his glory 
She would use all the challenges that death entails, including the loss of her strength and eventually even of her mind, to give her another opportunity to trust God completely. Of course, she'd have to learn how to do that, how to use death for everything it's worth by learning how to use life for everything it's worth. She would take ownership of her successes and her failures, her hopes and her fears. She would own her good health and her sickness and use it all to become like Christ and serve her God. How could a person use his own future? He would affirm God's goodness in giving whatever is to come. He would look for God's presence in everything. He would place the uncertainties of the future against the certainties of God's character and his faithfulness. When he found himself afraid of what might happen, he would follow the psalmist's example and trust God. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. He would confess that whatever the stock market does, however the next election turns out, whether or not his job gets downsized, whatever the future does to his health, however much money he has for retirement, he will trust God. He will own his future. You can own all things, your teachers, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all things. But only if you yourself are owned by Christ. Only he has the ability to give you all things. And that's far too dangerous a gift to give to a person who doesn't belong to Jesus. That's the condition. You can't set up shop on your own. When you're all his, all things will be yours. Not before. And not otherwise. So let me ask you a question. What in your life do you need to own? In your life right now. Hardship. Illness. Relational discord. Sexual desires. Uncertainty about finances. In the past, that thing has owned you. It's turned you inside out and tied you into knots. It's made you cry. It's made you jump. It's owned you. But it's time you owned it. All things are yours, including this thing. All things are yours when you are Christ's. So the first thing to establish is whether or not you are Christ's. You are not Christ because you were born in America. You are not Christ because you were born into a Christian family. You are not Christ because your parents took you to church and had you baptized. You're not Christ because you read the Bible or serve on a deacon board. You are Christ because you believe in Jesus Christ. You've confessed that he's Lord and have taken him as your leader with every intention of following him. You've given your life to him and he in turn has given his life, his spirit to you. If you want all things to be yours, then all of you needs to be his. If you're holding out on him, holding back part of your life from him, then you'll not be able to own that thing that's owned you. So you need to establish whether you're his or not. The next thing is to establish how you're going to use that thing. When you belong entirely to God, you will use all things for the purpose of serving him to spread his fame, to show people how good he is, to do his will. You'll use all things to understand God better, deepen your submission to him, and transform your character to be more like Jesus's. 
So take that thing that is owned to you, whatever it is, a divorce, perhaps, a financial fear, an illness, whatever it is, and say, by God, I'm going to own this thing starting now. There's a way to take that thing and turn it on its head, to use it to bring glory to God and Christ's likeness to your soul. And here's the thing. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to be super smart. God will teach you how to do that. Stop boasting about your abilities. Use them to make a difference, to glorify God and to love people. And stop moaning about your hardships. Use them to make a difference, to glorify God and to love people. You can do this. It is the destiny of the people of God. It's the birthright of the twice-born. That thing is waiting for you to own it. God is waiting for you to own it. We are waiting for you to own it. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Now let's pray. I'm going to give you just a moment because God may have brought something to your mind that you need to own. That thing's owned you, but it's time to change that. Would you tell him you want to change that? Now you have to belong to him and you can't be holding out on him. Once those conditions are made, then you need to own it for his glory. I'll let you talk to him about that. Father, forgive us. We have been little boys on the playground arm wrestling with one another when you've given us all things, the world, life, death, the future. We know it grieves your heart when we do not act like people of the Spirit. So change us. Grace us. And for the sake of Jesus, help us to take our place where we belong. In his holy name, amen.